Alright, alright, alright. What's up, YXL? Oh, you guys, the energy level's way down. Everybody's getting tired, huh? I can tell. Night number five. So this is the night that uh, I preached the longest, right? Try putting everybody to sleep. Give everybody a nap. Uh, I told somebody whose name, name may or may not be Kreth that, uh, you know, it's okay to fall, my sleep in the, in, in, fall asleep in my sermon on rest. That was actually a good application for it. And he just, he just nodded his head like this. The whole time. Get it? Nod on rest. Jokes, jokes. I had any push-ups today, but you guys weren't the ones that got me. It was actually my own daughter. I pulled this sweet ninja down move and got her back. This is what I did. I colluded with my son. I said, hey, we're going to get her. You go around on that side and sneak around and steal her napkin. I'm going to go around this side, and I'm going to distract her. So I went around this side and got her attention, and he got on his hands and knees and crawled around and stole his sister's napkin so that she had to do 10 push-ups. Clutch move, dude. Way to go. Shout out, bro. Big time bro move right there. All right. Well, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We are going to look there this evening. Now I'm going to start my handy-dandy stopwatch so I don't preach too long and put you guys all to sleep. It's not the goal, you know. Nobody ever complained about a short sermon. That's what I told them. Those are the told when I started preaching. So try to keep it short. Tonight we're going to talk about endurance in community. Endurance in community. Before we get started on that, I want to try to tie up a few loose ends. These are questions that people have asked me during the week. Okay? First question I got was, one night I said the gospel wasn't just a set of propositional truths to be memorized. So somebody asked me afterwards, they're like, so the gospel does have propositional truth, right? You're not saying it doesn't. That is correct. The gospel does have propositional truth. It does have truths, right? Statements of truth. But what I was trying to get across is it's not just that. It's not just that you're memorizing answers to a test so you can check a box. The gospel is about truth that was embodied in history by a person named Jesus. And so then to believe that truth means to embody it yourself, to act on it, to live it out. Okay? So it's not just something we memorize. It's something we incarnate, the way Jesus did. All right? Second question I got was, Will we always suffer more? I think the implication of my sermon kind of came across last night that God strengthens us for suffering so that we can suffer more as if the Christian life is just one long bout of suffering. And for maybe some of you who've already suffered a lot in life already, that can be a really heavy cross to bear. That was not what I was trying to say. What I was trying to say is that your, your struggles, the trials that God takes you through, strengthen you for what is to come. For some of you, that may be more suffering. For some of you, it may not be. I don't know. But I do know that it's important for you to finish going through the suffering, to not try to escape it, so that you can be trained and strengthened. Okay? Third question I got, last one was, what is going on with these questions? If we believe X truth, then how does that change the way we think, feel, and live? I think some people look at that as me almost asking, like, are you even a Christian if you don't do this? That was not the purpose of those questions, okay? Christians are a mix of belief and unbelief. Think about the guy who said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, right? He, there was part of him that believed, but there was also part of him that struggled with unbelief. Just like Jeremy said this morning, sanctification is progressive, 
we can be sanctified in degrees, right? So that question is trying to push you towards is, how do I believe this more and more and live this out in my life more and more? Okay? Now, if it kind of like rubbed you the wrong way, maybe it was actually a question. Maybe it was actually pushing you a little bit. Okay? So if you have any other questions, feel free to ask me or put them in the question box. We'll try to answer them tomorrow night. Tonight, let's look at Hebrews 10. We're going to talk about enduring in community. As we've seen so far, that endurance is a gift of the everlasting God. As we wait on him, he renews our strength. And we wait on him by doing three things. What are the three things? You might remember. Let's, let's take answer. What are the three things? Somebody raise your hand. Nobody. The three ways that we wait on him. We covered one a night. Yeah? Yes. Obedience, resting, and expecting. That's how we wait on him. And those are all things that we do in community. All right? So let's read here Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to start verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing here. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this good word that shares the gospel with us and teaches us how to experience that gospel in the community called your church. I pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit, give us a greater love and desire for Jesus and for his body and help us to love others the way Christ has loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1914, a British ship captain named Ernest Shackelford led a ship, led a ship called the Endurance on one of the most legendary trips of all time. Their goal was to sail down to Antarctica, get off their ship, and then be the first crew of people to walk across Antarctica to the other side. Well, they set out on their voyage from the bottom of South Africa and only a couple days into their trip, they hit a problem. The ice got so thick, the ship couldn't move. It was frozen in the ice. So they stayed there for months and months and months, like 10 months, hoping that the ship would eventually break free. But it didn't. And during that time, they faced incredible suffering from starvation and extremely cold temperatures. But the worst suffering came from the darkness. When the sun went down in mid-May, it didn't come back up until the end of July. For over two months, they were stuck in total darkness. Explorers say that polar night is confusing and disorienting to the point that it makes you mad. Yet, somehow, every single one of the men on that voyage survived. They were stranded in Antarctica for over a year 
and eventually their ship sank, they got off of it. Once the ice refroze, they walked across it, and they miraculously sent a, a small crew of people to find help. They found help at some whaling station. They came back and rescued the guys. Not a single person died. Now, when you watch a, a documentary video on this journey, what they will tell you is one of the ways that they stayed sane, one of the ways that they survived, was doing everything in community. Their ship captain forced them to do everything necessary for survival together, whether it was unloading the boat, shoveling ice, cooking food, or even playing games. They did it together. And that's how they survived. Through community. Like endurance, the only way we can develop the endurance to survive and thrive in the Christian life is through community. You cannot do it on your own. It won't happen. And the writer of Hebrews in this section begins to encourage his people to endure in their faith, and he tells them that it has to be done in community. The book of Hebrews starts out, and the writer is trying to, to teach the first century Jews that Jesus is greater than everything they experienced during the Old Testament period. He is greater than the angels. He is greater than Abraham. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than all the covenants, the sacrifices. He's greater than, than Melchizedek. He's greater than all of them. Everything points towards Jesus. He wants them to believe that and to trust Jesus. And then he begins to encourage them to endure in this faith and to access the presence of God. And he does that in the context of community. The writer reminds them in 19 through 22, the section we just read, he reminds them of the gospel that allows them to draw near to God. By faith in the shed blood of Jesus on their behalf, they could now enter into the presence of God being fully loved and fully accepted. And it's with that hope that they confessed as believers. And with that hope, they were united to Christ and they joined this community. Now, if you notice, all the imperatives in here, all the imperatives in this section are commands given with the words, let us. That's the first person plural. It's not let you, let me, it's let us. That's because faith in Christ unites us to a community of believers, and we live out that faith in community. Think about this way. If you wanted to find me right now, where would you go? Stage. You'd come to the stage, right? If, if one of my kids was lost and they wanted to find me, you'd tell them, go to the worship area, come to the stage. That's where he is. Why would you tell him to come here? Because that's where my body is, right? Right? If you want to find me, you've got to find my body. Now, if you want to find Jesus, where do you have to go? To his body. Where is his body? The church. The body of Christ. There is no ordinary way of salvation in Jesus Christ except through the church. There's no ordinary way. If you want God as your father, you have to have the church as your mother, as one great theologian said. The, the writer of Hebrews is trying to pound that into us right now. This community that Jesus forms is an intimate, interconnected community. Okay? So the Greek word that is used here when it says meeting together 
is the word episynagoge, which is the word that we get for synagogue. It is an active gathering of a group of people. It is not passive. So I think a lot of us, when we come to church or we come to worship together, we think we're like a bunch of marbles coming together in the same bag, right? We're all distinctly different, but we're together in the same space. That's not what, that's an aggregation. That's not a congregation. The congregation that the writer's talking about here is more like a cluster of grapes. When you have a cluster of grapes, they're all connected to each other and they're all connected to the vine. They're interrelated. They're sharing resources together. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that endurance in the Christian life is inseparable from Christian community that is interconnected through Jesus. Endurance in the Christian life is inseparable from the interconnected body of Christ called the church. And he wants us to endure in community. Okay? So he gives us four ways that we can endure in community. And that's what we're going to look at the rest of the time. Four ways we can endure in community. We can endure in community by considering each other. We can endure in community by spurring each other. By encouraging each other. And by working for each other. By considering each other, spurring each other, encouraging each other, and working for each other. So first, we can endure in community by considering each other. Verse 24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The word consider means to think or ponder or reflect. When it says that we need to consider how to spur one another towards love and good deeds, it's saying that we need to think intentionally how we can love one another well inside of this room. Right? It goes beyond just knowing this person's name and knowing where they're from and sitting in the same pew as them. It goes into, I want to get to know this person. I want to get to know their story. I want to get to know their strengths and their weaknesses. I want to get to know the particular ways that God has gifted them. And I want to find out how I can love and serve that person. I need to consider, I need to think about them intentionally. Do we do that? Yes, no, maybe, sometimes we try. What makes it hard? We're thinking about ourselves. That's what makes it hard. To consider one another, we have to set aside our own rights and think of others before we think of ourselves. And the only way we can do that is in the gospel. The only way we can think about somebody else first is if we have all of our needs met in Jesus. And it's only when I have all my needs met in Jesus that I can begin to think about somebody else. If not, all I'm going to do is think about myself. All I'm going to do is consider myself. But, but the way we endure in community is by thinking about each other. And it is vital, guys, that you begin to think about each other and move towards each other in love. Okay? It's a matter, honestly, it's a matter of spiritual life and death. Um, researchers did a survey they, they did some research on human beings that lived in isolation. And what they found is that humans that live in isolation will starve both physically and emotionally. Right? What they did is they took uh, children who had been in orphanages, and they, they studied how much contact they'd had, 
And then they looked at how they struggled with depression and anxiety later in life. And what they found is that, that those who struggled with depression and anxiety the most were those that were held the least. In prison, what is the worst punishment they can give you? Solitary confinement. What happens in solitary confinement is you lose all touch. People forget about you. Nobody is considering you. And eventually, if you stay in solitary confinement long enough, you'll go mad. It's vital. It's important that we consider each other, that we think about each other, that we move towards each other in love. We were made for each other, and we will die without each other. So that's the first thing. That's the first way we endure in community is by considering one another. And to cons- let me just throw this in there. And to consider one another, it takes Forgiveness and patience. I work with a lot of college students, and I can tell you that relationships and friendships ended over two things. Patience and forgiveness. People were unwilling to be patient with each other, and they were unwilling to forgive each other. Um, Joe was saying, doing one of your activities the other day, you guys were working together, and he could tell that it was a real struggle for you to be patient with each other, especially you leader types. Right? If you're a really strong leader and you're really gifted, you're going to have to learn to be patient with others the way Christ has been patient with you. And you're going to have to learn how to forgive your friends because they will sin against you. It will happen. And if you learn how to, don't learn how to forgive, you're going to end up having a really lonely life because there ain't a single person in this room or in your family and your church that's perfect. So we're going to consider each other. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to stir each other. That's a funny thing to say, isn't it? I kind of like it. The ESV here says to stir one another up. But the NIV, I like it better. It says to spur each other. It's, it's like a cowboy rider. I'm from Oklahoma. I went to Oklahoma State. Go Pokes. Right? So we know the cowboys have these spiky things on their boots called spurs. And what you do is when you want the horse to go, you kick it with the spur. And it's not enough pain to kill it. You're not like going to stab it and boot it to death. But it's just going to irritate it to motivate that horse to go forward. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that we need to irritate each other just a little bit to move forward in our relationship with Christ. What this means is there needs to be people in your life that can disagree with you, that can confront you, that can irritate you in a Holy Spirit-empowered, holy way. Right? Do you have anyone in your life who can confront you, who can ask you hard questions, who can irritate you in a holy way. You have anyone that you will allow to spur you. If not, then you won't endure. Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to get pulled aside by the sin and temptation in this world, and you're going to miss blind spots in your life. We all have blind spots. We all have things that we can't see. You know why they call them blind spots? Because you can't see them. But you know who can? Your friends and family, and the people you're around on a daily basis. You need those people to be the ones to talk to you about these things so that you can remain on course in your faith. There's a good illustration of this uh, in the book, The Odyssey. Uh, anybody read The Odyssey, Homer's Iliad Odyssey, all that? Okay. So Odysseus is on a voyage. He's in a ship. He's on a mission. And he's about to go by the sirens. And the sirens are on this island. And here's what the sirens do. They call out to sailors. 
And as these male sailors hear these sirens, they are drawn off track towards this island, and they are shipwrecked. So Odysseus knows this, so this is what he does. He ties him, he has, he tells his, his shipmates, I want you to tie me to the mast. I want you to plug my ears. And we go by the sirens, I'm going to go crazy. It will happen. No matter what I say, do not take me off that mast. I'm staying there until we get out of range on the sirens. And that's what they did so that he could survive and not get shipwrecked. You need friends like that who are going to tie you to the mast and hold you to your faith because they love you. You need friends that will give you not what you want, but what you need. You need friends that are going to spur you on in your relationship with Christ. So we endure through considering each other. We endure through spurring one another. And then thirdly, we endure through encouraging one another. The word for encourage is parakaleo, which means to come alongside, to call and support. It involves both sympathy and empathy, right? And it is the opposite of spurring, right? So spurring, you're irritating this person in a good, healthy way, encouraging, you're coming alongside them and you're going to be a cheerleader. You're going to be a helper. You're going to be a supporter because you want to see them succeed. You want to see them flourish, right? Now, most churches focus on one or the other. You have churches that are really good at spurring. They are going to confront you about your sin, whether you like it or not. And then you have some churches and some Christian communities that are really good at encouraging. They're going to rah, rah, rah. They're going to cheer you on, but they're not going to confront you about hard things. You need to be a healthy church. We need, you need both of those things. You need a community that's going to spur you and a community that's going to encourage you. You need someone that's going to irritate you to move you forward, and you need someone that's going to get behind you and cheer you on. Um, I like to exercise. You guys probably figured that out. I talk about it every night. Part of that's the topic, though. I wouldn't always talk about this. It wasn't the topic. But I like to exercise. I especially love group fitness classes. I love going in and working out together as a team. And so in the classes I go to, we come in, and there's a workout on the board, and we all basically do the same workout except for a few modifications. And we start the workout together, and then we go through that workout as long as it takes us, and then we end the workout together. And we have a rule, and that rule is you cannot start cleaning up your station until everybody's done. So this is what happens to me on a long, grueling workout. I'm normally slow. I'm really one of the last ones. And as I'm working out and I'm going through this long, grueling workout that's getting the 20 and 30 minute range, I want to quit. I want to throw in the time like, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? I'm just going to give up. It doesn't matter. I'm walking out of here. But every time that happens, somebody else finishes. And they come alongside me and they start cheering me on. Hey, Shane, you can do it. Good job, Shane. Keep going. Keep going. And by the end of the class, you basically got, because you know, I'm last, I basically got everybody in the gym cheer me on. There's some benefits to the class. I've got the support of the whole gym encouraging me to finish. Now, the only way they can do that is if they don't care about their own self-righteousness. Right? For us to be a community of believers that cheers each other on, we need the righteousness of Christ and not our own righteousness. Do you find it hard to cheer others? 
Do you find it hard to support them and encourage them? Do you find it hard to come alongside people? Do you have a, a critical spirit? Maybe you're finding your righteousness in yourself, not in Christ. To encourage each other, you've got to find your righteousness in Christ. So we're going to consider each other, spur each other, encourage each other. And lastly, we're going to work for each other. Look back at verse 24. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now the Greek word here for love is an active, compassionate service. It is a, a Christian community that seeks to, to serve each other in very tangible, practical ways. They're trying to do deeds of compassion and service. This type of love is very practical. You look for a physical need and you try to meet it. Uh, there was a time whenever Sherry and I were, were newly married a long time ago. We, we just had Tucker. He was about a year old. And Sherry was going through some health problems. And so we were really stressed out because she was struggling. We had this young kid. I was working, uh, you know, I was teaching, coaching, driving a bus, doing all sorts of stuff, working all the time. And every little practical thing around the house was challenging because I just didn't have a lot of time or energy. And there was a, a family at our church that had a lawn service company. And they say, you know what? We're going to come by your house and mow your lawn once a week for free. You don't have to do it, but we'll take care of it. Very simple practical thing. They were fantastic. It took them like, it would have taken me an hour to mow my lawn. It took them 15 minutes. They did it for me every week. That's the kind of love that the writer's talking about here. How can you show that love to one another? Look around your friends and your family. Maybe it's cleaning up around the house. Maybe it's helping a friend with homework. Maybe it's volunteering in the nursery at your church. Maybe it's handing out bulletins at your church. There is no job and no person that's unimportant in the body of Christ. Every member matters, and every act of service matters. We help each other endure in community. But this, this word for love is not, it's, it's for the community, but it also doesn't just look at those people that are like us. It is a love that looks out at others. It is a love that looks at people who are different than us. The Christian community is beautiful because it brings people of all different backgrounds together in Christ. It brings Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, black and white, rich and poor, private school kids, public school kids, homeschool kids, PCA kids, Baptist kids, kids who were born on the street and never went to church. brings all these people together united in Christ. It becomes a beautiful community because it's diverse. Yes, you want to love the people inside your congregation that are like you, but the gospel calls us to love people who are other than us and different. The gospel calls us to love our enemies. Think about it. Who is your enemy? Who's your enemy? Who's your natural enemy? The gospel calls us to move towards them in love because when we were enemies, God moved towards us. Who's the person that you would see walking on the street and you kind of go, ugh? The gospel calls us to think about moving towards that person in love. In practical deeds of compassion. And even in the gospel of John, it says that the world is going to know each other by how we love each other 
That's going to be a testimony to the gospel. And friends, if we don't love each other, everybody, even in our differences, then the, the outsiders won't see the love of Christ as clearly. And that, honestly, I'll tell you, that's one of the hardest things uh, about campus ministry was trying to get people to love each other that were different. But I'll tell you, when it happened, it was beautiful. Uh, we had a couple students in our ministry that were very opposites. Uh, Nathan was a, a, a big, boisterous basketball player, athlete. Uh, you know, business, it, was a, yeah, it was a business major, he was a vet major, right? Very different. And then he had a great, but well, we had a, another guy on the leadership team who was, his name was Cameron. Cameron was uh, not an athlete. He was a runner. He was a computer guy. He was an engineer. They had all this like friendly banter between like the business people and the engineering people, right? They were very different, but they loved each other. That's what the body of Christ ought to look like. Um, I heard a great story that I thought uh, describes this really well. Uh, There's a, a church planter out in California. His name was Tim. And Tim uh, wanted to get to know his neighbor. So he went over and he started talking to his neighbor, and they were hanging out together, and he asked his neighbor what he did for a living, and his neighbor said, well, I make adult films. And Tim said, okay, can I have another drink? Just didn't know what to do with it. So he said, sure. And they, they kept being friends. They kept getting to know each other. Well, eventually, Tim's living girlfriend had a stroke. She got really sick. She had to go to the hospital. She had another stroke. She had a heart attack. She had brain surgery. She had all of these terrible things happen to her. In the midst of that, all these beautiful friends that they had made in L.A. through their business all deserted them, would not care for them, wouldn't even come visit them in the hospital. But Tim and his family brought these two people meals and sat with them in the hospital he said it was really hard. One night, it was a Sunday evening, and Tim was tired, and the phone rang, and it was Jason. That was the guy's name. He said, Jason said, hey, I need you to come up here and pray with us. And Tim was like, well, do you want me to pray with you? And he was like, yeah. And he put down the phone, and he looked at his wife, and he was like, honestly, honey, I really don't want to get out right now. And she was like, you've been praying for opportunities to minister to these people. You get your tail to the hospital, and you pray for them. And so he went, he sat with them, they cried together, they prayed together, he said he prayed the most bumbling, stumbling, simple prayer. And when he got done, Jason looked at him and said, if I would have known that Christians were like that, I would have considered Christianity a long time ago. Eventually, his girlfriend healed up, got out of the hospital, and was meeting with Tim. It was Jason, the girlfriend of Tim. And the girlfriend said, Tim, I want to come to your church. Can we do that? I looked at Jason, and Jason was like, heck yeah, we can. We're going to Tim's church. And so one Sunday, they showed up, and they sat in the front row, and Tim said, as he was preaching, he looked out at the front row, and he said that there was a musician that was off Broadway that was there, or you know, a musician that was off tour that was there, an actress from Mad Men, a heroin addict, Jason, the adult filmmaker, and his girlfriend, and the most beautiful, sweet Christian family you had ever seen. And he thought to himself, Jesus, these are your people. These are your people. And after the service that Jason and his girlfriend stuck around, and the members of that congregation stayed and prayed with him for an hour. And the months following that occasion, 
that Jason and his girlfriend would come over and pray with Tim on a regular basis. That's what it looks like when we endure in community and we love one another and people begin to see that love and experience it becomes attractive. C.S. Lewis says that Christ works us in all sorts of ways, but above all, he works on us through each other. The church has no other purpose than to draw others to Christ and to make them little Christs. Christ works on us through each other. And then more and more people come into that and they become Christians. And it brings together, as D.A. Carson says, it called, he says Christians are a band of natural enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake. And as we do that, we endure and we're strengthened. And Revelations gives us a beautiful picture of what heaven is going to look like. And it says this, after this, I looked and beheld a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, staying there before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm trees, palm branches in their hand. Friends, that day is coming near. The day when every tribe, every tongue, every nation is bowing down before the Lord Jesus praising him and worshiping him, and God can use us as a community to strengthen each other to get there and to bring others in. We can't do it alone, and we can't do it without the Holy Spirit. So let's pray that God would help us. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you have given us this beautiful word that shows us how that we can love one another the way that you have loved us. It gives a beautiful picture of what the new heavens and the new earth will look like when you have gathered your people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Lord, we pray that you would use us to that end. We pray that you would help us to consider one another, to spur one another on, to encourage one another, and to serve each other with loving deeds of compassion. We pray that you would use that to strengthen us, and we pray that you would use that to bring more and more people to Jesus so they can experience your grace and kindness through him. Holy Spirit, we need you. Please help us. We can't do this on our own. We can't muster up the strength or the intelligence or the creativity to do it. We need you. You are the great healer, the great converter, the great evangelist. Father, use us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>
is a well-known Christian writer, theologian, and uh, I think he's a philosopher or psychologist. But he was invited to go to Hawaii to speak. And so when you go to Hawaii, it's a different time zone. You fly over there in the middle of the night, you get jet lag, you can't sleep. So he's over there in the middle of the night, he can't sleep, it's like 3 a.m., so he just decides, I'm going to go do something to eat. So he goes out of his hotel and walks to a really shady part of town. He finds a diner to get something to eat at at 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, he overhears two women who are dressed very provocatively talking. And he realizes these two women are prostitutes. And one of the women says, her name's Agnes, she says, tomorrow's my birthday, just in conversation. And the other lady says, well, what are you going to do for your birthday? Are you going to have a party? And Agnes, Agnes says, no, I've never had a single birthday party in my entire life. And so Tony overhears that. He's heartbroken. These two women, they get up, they leave. Tony goes to the owner of the diner who's there, and Harry. And Harry's a pretty rough-looking guy, and Harry serves some pretty rough-looking characters. And he says, Harry, you know those women? He goes, yeah, I know everybody that come to my restaurant. Look at this. So you know Agnes. Um, she just said that she's never had a birthday party. Could we throw her a birthday party here tomorrow night? And Harry says, well, yeah, sure, if you want to. And Tony says, yeah, I'll buy everything. I'll buy the, the cake, I'll buy the streamers, I'll buy the signs, all that stuff, and I'll bring that. Do you know her friends? He said, yeah, I know all of her friends. He said, I want you to tell all of her friends that we're going to throw her a birthday party tomorrow night. So he goes home, he goes throughout the next day, he goes, he buys all the supplies for the birthday party. 2.30 in the morning, he goes back to the diner. He begins to set up for this birthday party. He sets everything up. About 3 o'clock, all of her friends, who are also prostitutes, show up to the diner. And then about 3.15 or 3.30, Agnes walks in the door. They begin singing happy birthday to her. She just begins to weep. She starts crying so much she can't control herself. She can't even stand up. She has to sit down. When she finally composes herself, they bring her the birthday cake, and they put it in front of her, and they give her a knife. And she says, I can't cut it. And Tony says, well, let me cut it for you. And she said, no, 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 don't cut the cake. He says, why not? She said, I want to keep it. Can I, I'm going to go home real quick. I'm going to get something. I want to keep this cake. And I'm like, well, okay. And so Agnes gets up and leaves her own birthday party. And Tony's standing there in the middle of this birthday party with a diner filled with prostitutes. He doesn't know what to do. And he goes, well, guys, let's pray for Agnes. So he bows his head and he begins to pray for Agnes. And he prays that she would know the Lord, that the Lord would rescue her, and that she would find healing and hope in her life. Very sincere, compassionate, simple prayer. He says, Amen. And Harry looks at him and says, I didn't know you were a pastor. And, Harry, and Tony goes, yeah, I'm a pastor. He goes, what kind of church do you pastor anyways? He says, well, I pastor a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry goes, well, that is the kind of church that I want to go to. That is a simple, tangible, uh, but powerful way in which the church loved the other, loved the outsider, loved someone who was ashamed and guilty and had never had the dignity of even having her own birthday party. And it proclaimed the gospel in word and deed to people who needed to hear it. I was that outsider. I told y'all that I was so bad when I was 16 that my mom wasn't sure they would want me at church camp. 
I was the kind of person that needed your love. I never felt comfortable in Christian community until I was in my mid-20s, and I became a member of BCA Church. From the time I was 16 until I was probably 26, 27, somewhere around there, I always felt like an outsider amongst Christians. Christians and non-Christians need your love. But here's the thing that you don't know. Ready? You will never be able to love other people until you realize how much Jesus loves you and likes you. Because one of the biggest things that Christians struggle with is shame. Every one of you in here feels ashamed. And you feel like, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for me. God loves me. But God doesn't really like me. I'm here to tell you that God loves you and he likes you. He doesn't like the ideal you that never sins. He doesn't like the ideal you that never lies that never looks at stuff you shouldn't look at, that never eats anything you shouldn't look at, that never gossips about anybody. He doesn't love that ideal you because that ideal you does not exist. He loves the real you. He loves the you, the you that sins and needs grace daily. And the more and more you believe that and you experience the smile of your Heavenly Father, the more that you're going to be able to love others. Your Heavenly Father loves you and He likes you. Jesus loves you and He likes you. The Holy Spirit loves you and He likes you. Go and love others the way Christ has loved you.